started this series a few weeks ago now, uh, this series, Like Jesus, in the car, nudged by our neighbor to respond to the question, what does his death have to do with my life? What does his death have to do with my life? And we've now held up that question in front of a few billboard texts from Genesis 1 to Philippians 2. But today, we go driving in the Gospel of John. Now, our recent spring break trip was full of driving. We drove the kids to their grandparents, and I probably don't need to tell you, but 20 hours in the car plus four kids equals a couple questions about time. How much time is left? What time are we going to get there? The question we've all asked and heard, how much longer? How much time now? Well, son, three minutes less than the last time you ask. We had enough time to exhaust multiple websites of jokes for kids. I am now armed with all kinds of dad jokes. Uh, why is it a bad idea to let Elsa hold your balloon? She'll let it go. Uh, did you know that Teslas don't have much of a new car smell? No, it's more of a Elon Musk. Oh, come on now. <laughs> Armed with all kinds of dad jokes, which are really no different than preacher jokes, I guess. But even those only take up so much time. How much time? How much time? How much time now? And in that way, it's a little bit like reading the Gospel of John. John is littered with all kinds of time commentary. All kinds of time. Is it time? Uh, Jesus says in John 4 and in John 5, a time is coming. It's here, it's coming, a time is coming. Uh, in John 7, when they prodded Jesus to go to the festival, Jesus said, it's not my time. My time hasn't come. Uh, Jesus said in the same chapter, I'm only with you a short time. The time is coming. It's coming. It's coming all through John. This time is coming. Uh, Jesus says to the disciples, it's coming. Peter says, we're ready. We're ready. We are ready. And Jesus says, really? Are you really ready? No, you're not. Are you ready to lay down your life? No, three times before the evening is over. You will swear that you don't know me. John 16, still a time is coming. A time is coming when you're going to leave and you're going to scatter and you're going to leave me alone. But I won't really be alone. No, the Father will be with me. A time is coming. All through John, you're flipping through. A time is coming. It's coming. It's not here yet. It's coming. And then finally, in John 17, Jesus says, it's time. The hour has come. Glorify your son. 
Let your son may glorify you. It's time. That time of glorification and the time has finally arrived. Not just for those disciples, but the time that all of creation has anticipated. You ever pull up somewhere after all kinds of anticipation? I mean, you've been looking forward to this place that you're going only to find that it is nothing like what you imagined. I mean, not at all. You, you, you thought you were going to the penthouse and this place looks like the penitentiary. Well, Peter, Peter is waving that flag, that uh, this isn't where I thought we were going flag. Peter knew the time was coming and Peter said, I'm ready. I'm ready. Jesus, I'm ready. He pledged his allegiance. He swore on his life. And when the time come, and when the time came, he pulled out a sword. In the face of a battalion of soldiers, he pulled out a sword. Peter wasn't bluffing. But what Jesus does next is not anticipated. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, put up your sword. Put up your sword. Am I not going to drink the cup the Father has given me? And Peter said, this is not where I thought we were going. Peter was willing to go down with a fight, but this, to drink the cup, to willingly lay down your life, this is not where I thought we were going. You know, sometimes we poke at Peter and early disciples for the mistakes that they made, for the misunderstandings they had. They were looking for a worldly kingdom, we say. They, they thought it would come by the sword. They missed it. But I wonder, out the window of our car ride, are their mistakes any different than mine? They, like us, longed for the kingdom to come, and they thought it would come by force. But you know what? Even after he told us, no, even after he showed us, I confess I still find myself looking for the kingdom to come with a show of force. Stamp out the evil, right the wrongs, Heal, heal, help, heal. And when it comes differently, am I open? Are we open to the truth Jesus teaches? Do we catch the reign of God when it comes by way of a cross? On our quest to answer or at least respond to the question, what does his death have to do with my life? We pull up on a striking phrase from Jesus offered on the cross. Jesus says, it is finished. Right after he looked at his mom and he pairs, this is your son, this is your mother, he says, I am thirsty, I'm going to drink the cup. Then Jesus says, it is finished. Just three words, but what is it? And what does it all mean? 
I'm certain this morning that we will not bring out the full meaning of those three little words. It is finished. It is finished, the great reconciliation. It is finished, the great revelation. It is finished, the great rout, the greatest reality revealed. It is finished. We won't ring out all the meaning of those words, but today I feel compelled to tell you about a dead-end road that I've done some driving on, a, a way of hearing those words that distances it distances his death from our plight. If we're not careful, we may end up hearing this phrase, it is finished, and assume that it refers to the way of the cross. To assume that the way of the cross is over. The way of the cross is finished. It's complete. And when we do, I'm telling you it's a dead-end road, but it's not just a dead-end road. It's dangerous. History is not short on examples of Christians who passionately campaign for the cross in ways that disintegrate, decimate the way of the cross. Christians who embrace our absolute dependence on the cross, we wear them and we carry them into battles and rallies all the while seeing no connection between his death and the way we order our lives. Uh, for more than four centuries, there's a little church outside the walls of Segovia, Spain, that um, held what is believed to be fragments of the true cross. Um, the church's name, even today, bears the inscription, Iglesia de la Vera Cruz. And historians have debated exactly who constructed this church and under what order. But for a long time, I'm told of warrior monks who defended the cross with a sword. Now, that's not irony. What is? To defend the true cross of Jesus, ignoring the instruction of Jesus. Put down your sword, Peter. I wouldn't mention the story, but it wasn't just once in Spain. I'm telling you, history is not short on these examples. In fact, I came across in a journal this description. The relic was perceived as a movable holy place. And thus all Christians assembled around it could be identified as pilgrims. And by extension, violence could be justified as defense of the relic and service to the Christian Flock, God help us. There are plenty of people who have sung, Soldiers of Christ arise, and they didn't mean it as a metaphor, where I want to be in the Lord's army was more battle cry than VBS song. 
I feel compelled to warn you about this dead-end road. And I know this is the place in my own car where someone would say, Dad, Dad, don't be silly. I mean, that's terrible and all. But I would never drive down that road. I would never end up here. I would never pull out a sword to defend the cross. But that's the dangerous thing about this dead end. It doesn't start with swords. It it begins as soon as we lose sight of the cross. It, It begins as we distance ourselves from the way of the cross. When Jesus becomes the means, but not the model. It begins as soon as we start driving down the road and concede a discipleship course where we can say, yes, yes, I want the benefit of the cross. But no, I have zero interest in walking the path of the cross. Give me Jesus, but don't you dare serve me sour wine. That way, we say, it is finished, it's relegated, it is past. It begins as soon as we lose sight of the cross. At the bottom of almost every email I send is that final greeting, grace and peace. I'm not exactly sure when I started putting it. You have to sign off some way. Thanks, respectfully, gratefully. And somewhere along the way, and I wish there were a better story or meaning, a pivotal moment of life change, but I I just picked it up somewhere and I started typing grace and peace. Now, I, I don't have it programmed like the signature, the fancy signatures where it automatically shows up, which means I type it every time, which means sometimes when I type in a hurry, people have been known to end up with grape and peace, grade and peace, even grace and pace. If that ever happens to you, no, it's not the Picanti sauce. I was just in a hurry, grace and pace. I type it so often I don't even think about it, most of the time. But there are times when I go to send an email. I send one of those emails where I am passionately defending something, and I'm not talking about other people or their rights, uh, more of complaining, usually to someone I, I don't really know or at least know very well, and I'm complaining about the injustice of uh, what I deemed less than ideal, less than what I deserve. I labor away at the keyboard making my case. You've written these emails, you know, the long emails, and I lay out my case, and then I come to the end of the email, and I go to type, Grace, and wait, can I sign this one? Grace and Peace? if I can't sign it, can I send it? I can make a case for yes more than a few times. I've convinced myself, yes, send away. They had it coming to them. But it's one of the early indications for me. I may be on that dead end road. 
that road that interprets, it is finished as meaning it, the way of the cross, it is over. One that says Jesus walked this path so we don't have to. But church, that is not something Jesus ever said. Jesus did say, John 13, I've set an example. Just as I have loved, you watched what I just did with the disciples and their feet, and you know what it foreshadows, or at least you will. Just as I have loved, you, you also love. And remember that no servant is greater than his or her master. So when we come to the cross, it's more. It's more than remembering what happened to him. It's being reminded we follow his lead. Some people say the cross, it's, it's like being rescued by a firefighter. Jesus does what we couldn't do. We don't go, run back in, go running back into the building. He did what we could never do, and our offering is gratitude. And I say, that's right. Others say the cross. It's like seeing a firefighter in action being rescued and being inspired by their courage. We follow their lead. And I say, isn't that right too? I mean, I get it. I believe the cross is more than a code for life, that Jesus accomplished something unique the whole world was waiting on. But I also believe the cross is not an anomaly in the Christian faith. The cross is more than the means to life. It is the model. And if we're looking for a pattern, and in case you didn't know, we're a group of people that like to look for patterns, this is perhaps the most explicitly endorsed pattern in our New Testament. Follow his lead. Jesus says, I will lay down my life for you. Follow me. Jesus' death was not an accident. He was in firm control. In fact, as John tells the story, when they come for him in the garden, and Jesus says the words, I am, did you notice they all fall down? Jesus has to say, get up, get up, get on with it. Aren't you going to do what you came to do? Pilate thinks he has a little bit of control, and Jesus reminds him and us, you would have no control were it not entrusted to you. Jesus' death is not an accident. He told us it was coming. John 12, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only... A single seed. But if it dies, it's coming. The time, it's coming. It's coming. The time of my glorification. And Jesus says now, here in this moment, it's time. The way of the cross is not an accident. It's more than the means. It is the model. Jesus told us, just as I have loved you, you also love each other. And greater love... As no one than this, but to lay down one's life. And in this moment, if you can look up and see with me this morning, we'll see that Jesus does what he told us to do.
Jesus does what he taught. He dies like he lived. He says, it is finished. And then Jesus gives up his spirit. One commentator translates it, not gives up, but he hands over his spirit. And this handover is the handoff that Jesus forecast. He's told us all along, after I go, the spirit will come. He gives up his spirit. We heard as early as John 7, this is the spirit who will come. When I go, the spirit will come. And we see in this moment, new community is created in the wake of Jesus' offering. One in which you and I are now inseparably connected. Like Mary and the disciple Jesus loved. One where Jesus is both the means and the model. One where words like glory and greatness are redefined in the wake of the one we follow. And church, I believe it's time. It's time. The time is now. It is time that we reclaim our story. It's time. That if people know anything about Christians or anybody associated with a cross, they know he, she, they are willing to lay down their lives. It is finished. It holds the spotlight on to the beginning of new creation. And you know what? Whatever in atonement entails, it does mean that we are at one with the one who walks in the way of the cross. May we never forget that living with him means living like him, like Jesus. Let's pray. Holy God, will you, by power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us, raise our eyes, soften our hearts, so that we see you. So that we see you not just with our heads or in our memories, but with our hearts and our whole being. Lord, help us see you and to see in you the way forward to believe what you, Jesus, taught us, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, would you raise our eyes and soften our hearts so that we see you. Amen.